Chapters 5 and 6 of The Girl from Malta by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 5. A Day at Jib The inquest on the body of Lionel Benton was resumed next day, but nothing new was discovered, and taking into consideration the strange story told by the deceased to Monteith, the time of the committal of the crime, which according to the doctor's showing must have taken place when the ship was leaving Valletta, there appeared no doubt but that the murder had been committed before the steamer left Malta. As the deceased's real name was not Venton, and all the evidence was purely circumstantial, the jury brought in a verdict of willful murder against a person unknown. The evidence was taken down so as to be handed to the authorities in Gibraltar. Entries were made in the logbook about the affair, and poor Lionel Venton's body was committed to the deep. There is something inexpressibly sorrowful and solemn in a burial at sea. The body, wrapped in a sail with iron shot at its feet, was placed on the lower deck near the open bulwarks, and was covered with the Union Jack. A number of the passengers were present, leaning from the upper deck, but many of the ladies, among whom was Mrs. Pellypop, were reading the service for the dead to themselves in the saloon. The captain, surrounded by his officers, read the service over the deceased, and at a signal the body was pushed over the side, slipping from under the Union Jack, and fell with a dull splash into the sea. Then everyone dispersed, the engines, which had been slowed down during the burial, resumed their usual speed, and life on board went on as usual. There was a gloom, however, over all the ship, for it was not an ordinary death, and it was not until the Neptune reached Gibraltar that the passengers began to recover their usual gaiety. Meanwhile, Ronald Monteith had become the slave of Carmela Cottoner, and judging from her gracious manner towards him, she was in no wise displeased at having him at her feet. Ronald had hitherto laughed at the tender passion, but now he was being paid back for insulting the god of love as he found out to his cost. He was always at Carmela's elbow, carried her rugs and pillows about for her, danced with her, read poetry to her, and, in fact, was so constant in his attentions that it was soon patent to the whole ship that Monteith was madly in love with the girl from Malta. And, indeed, she was called nothing else. Mrs. Pellypop, not knowing her name at first, had given her that title, and everyone else followed suit. She was the belle of the ship, vice Kate Lester resigned, and was always followed by an adoring crowd of young men, of whom Ronald grew unspeakably jealous, and would get quite sulky if she smiled or spoke to anyone else. He carried this absurd behavior to such an extent that Pat Ryan took him to task one day for his sins. "'You are a jolly old ass, Ronald,' observed the candid Irishman to go on like this, making a fool of yourself. I can't help it, said Monteith, ruefully surveying at a distance a group of young fellows standing around Carmela. Just look at her. She doesn't care a bit about me. Of course you say that, said Pat, lighting a cigarette, because she doesn't devote herself exclusively to you. I tell you what, girls don't like being made faces at because they speak to another fellow. Hang it, I've seen you speak to girls enough. That was before I, I, hesitatingly, met Miss Cottoner. Before you were in love, you mean, retorted Pat. Begad, you've got the disease badly. Are you going to marry her? I will if she'll have me. Then why don't you ask her? I've only known her a few days. Isn't that rather soon? Not a bit. Women like to be taken by storm. "'Wisely remarked Pat, who was just out of the nursery "'and fancied he knew the sex, heaven help him. "'Go in and win, my boy.' "'By Jove, I will,' said Ronald eagerly, 
and then fell to thinking what his father would say to the marriage. He didn't know who the young lady was, what she was, knew nothing about her family, and yet, and yet he adored her. Why shouldn't he marry her? He was his own master, and if his father cut him off without a shilling, he could work. She was worth working for. Yes, he would ask her to marry him. Of course she would say yes, for it never entered this confident young man's head that women sometimes say no. So Master Ronald went on building castles in the air, all inhabited by himself and Mrs. Monteith. No, hang it, not yet. The girl from Malta. He was aroused from these golden visions by a touch on his arm, and turning round saw his special dislike, the Marchese Vassella, looking at him. The Marchese detested Monteith, both for his good looks and for the evident regard Miss Cottoner had for him. He would like to have dropped his rival over the side along with poor Benton's body, but as he couldn't do this he was excessively polite, and watched for an opportunity to do him an injury. Here was a chance now, and the wily Maltese took full advantage of it. He overheard the conversation between Pat and Monteith, so determined to dash all Ronald's hopes to the ground by telling him that Carmela was engaged. To this end the serpent came into Ronald's paradise and, smiling, invited him not to have an apple, but a drink. The young man would have refused, but then he thought he might learn something about Carmela, and after all the Marchese was her cousin, so he consented and went down to the bar with the smiling Maltese gentleman. As it was about eleven o'clock, they found the bar surrounded by thirsty souls having cocktails. In fact, there was a cocktail club on board, and it was a very popular drink with the young men, particularly if they had been up late the night before. Cocktails, therefore, being the prevailing beverage, the Marchese and his victim each had one, and then the former gentleman opened the campaign. "'I shall be sorry when this voyage is over,' he said carelessly. "'So shall I,' replied Monteith, thinking of the chances of meeting Carmela in London. "'But I dare say I'll meet Miss—' I mean, you again. I don't think so, said Vassella coldly. Myself and my cousin only stay a few days in London, and then go down to some friends in the country. Oh, said Ronald, and looked blank. And then, pursued his tormentor, eyeing him mercilessly, I am coming back to London to arrange about our marriage. The poor lad turned pale as death. Whose marriage? "'Mine and my cousin's. "'Did you not know we were engaged?' "'Ronald finished his drink in a mechanical sort of way "'and putting down his glass walked away to his cabin "'and shut himself in. "'The Marchese looked after him with a grim smile. "'I think that will give you food for reflection, my friend,' "'he muttered, lighting a cigarette as he strolled away. "'What's up with that Maltese devil?' asked Bentley. "'He looks quite pleased with himself.' "'It's more than Monteith did. "'He walked away as pale as a ghost,' said Pat. "'It's about the girl from Malta, you bet,' said Bentley sagely, "'and no one contradicted him. "'Miss Cottoner was without her attentive cavalier all that day "'and was much surprised thereat. "'She asked her cousin about him, "'and that smiling gentleman told her Ronald was ill "'and had gone to lie down. "'And indeed Ronald was ill, "'not with a headache, but with a heartache, which is worse.' and he lay all day in his narrow berth bemoaning his hard fate. Nor did he come to dinner, 
and Miss Cottoner was so vexed to think he was so ill that she sent her steward with a little note to his cabin saying how sorry she was, and she hoped he would be well enough on the morrow to take her over Gibraltar, all of which Monteith read and puzzled over. "'She's a flirt, a heartless coquette,' cried the poor boy. "'She's engaged to another man, and she's trying to break my heart, but she won't. I care no more for her than this bit of paper,' and he threw the little note on the floor. After a bit, however, with the usual inconsistency of lovers, he picked it up, and thought what a pretty hand she wrote, and then that he would go over Gibraltar with her, and he would find out if she were really engaged to that beastly Maltese. Ronald's language was strong, but not choice. Then he sent a reply to Carmela, saying he would see her in the morning, and afterwards drank a bottle of champagne and felt better. Oh, what a queer disease is love, with its hopes, its fears! its smiles and tears, its kisses and blisses, and its intense egotism. The next day Monteith arose, cooled his hot head with a shower bath, donned a suit of spotless white flannels, put a straw hat on his curly locks, and sallied forth with the determination to save his charming princess from the clutches of the ogre Vassella, or die in the attempt. "'Hullo!' cried Pat, seeing the unusual splendor of Master Ronald's apparel. "'Going on the mash today?' "'Gad, you'll knock the jib girls over like ninepins.' Whereat Ronald informed Pat in confidence that he intended to try his fate with Miss Cottoner that day, and Pat informed Ronald, likewise in confidence, that he thought he was quite right, and would bet him a bottle of champagne he would be accepted, which wager Monteith took, and went on deck with a light heart and a strong determination to win. All this time, however, in spite of his newborn love, Monteith never for a moment wavered from his determination to hunt down the assassin of his dead friend, and told Captain Templeton as much. "'How are you going to do it?' asked Templeton dubiously. "'We cannot even find out Venton's real name.' "'Isn't there a portrait of him among his luggage?' asked Monteith. Templeton shook his head. "'Not anything likely to lead to identification,' he answered. "'but I'll have a talk with you after we leave Gibraltar, "'for I must confess I would like the riddle solved.' "'And the captain went off to his post on the bridge "'as they were now nearing the famous rock. "'Who that has once seen it can forget that enormous grey mass "'rising up from the blue water into the blue sky "'with the red-roofed town nestling at its base? "'Monteith had never seen anything so impressive since Aden, "'which he had beheld vague and mysterious in the starlight.' He realized with a thrill of pride that this was one of the visible signs of England's greatness, and he thought, with satisfaction, that he too was of the race that had conquered it. Aden, Malta, Gibraltar, all held by England. It made Ronald quite patriotic when he thought of the impregnability of these strongholds. If he had been a poet, he would have burst into verse, but as he was not, he simply contented himself with a commonplace observation. By Jove, it's wonderful! The Anglo-Saxon race are rarely enthusiastic. The ship cast anchor about a mile from the shore, and soon Ronald and his beloved were in one of the boats dancing over the choppy water. Pat also was in the boat, and so was Mrs. Pellypop and Kate Lester. Ronald hinted to Pat that the old lady would be in the way, but Pat magnanimously said he would look after both her and Miss Lester so as to leave Monteith free to pursue his wooing with Carmela. 
When they reached shore, they rejected all the offers of carriages made by brown-skinned natives of the rock, and sauntered leisurely up the dusty street, under the massive gateway above which they could see the red-coated sentries, and walked right into the marketplace, where a lot of buying, selling, swindling, and talking were going on. Jews, with black beady eyes and hooked noses, invited them into dingy little shops and produced oriental goods, and sedate-looking moors in baggy trousers and large turbans watched them with eastern apathy as they passed along. The tall white houses, with the striped awnings over the windows, the crowd of dirty little brats howling for money, the number of red uniforms about, and the narrow, crowded streets all afforded them much amusement. Then Mrs. Pellypop, inveigled by the wily Pat, went into a shop to buy some things and was soon engaged in a lively altercation with the shopman who spoke broken English and showed her broken things which he said came from Granada and would have had a broken head if Mrs. Pellypop had not reflected that using her umbrella for such a purpose might lower her dignity. Pat and Miss Lester looked on and laughed at the scene, so, taking advantage of the confusion, Ronald and Carmela slipped away and climbed up the steep lanes to the old Moorish castle which frowns over the town. "'I don't care much for ruins,' said Miss Cottoner, putting up her red sunshade and a pretty picture she looked under it. "'There's a good deal of sameness about them. But Moorish architecture is picturesque.' "'Yes, very,' assented Ronald, who would have agreed to anything she said. I have Arab blood in my own veins, observed Carmela, at least so my father said. One of our ancestors was an emir. Is your father alive? asked Ronald, who saw in this remark a good opportunity for finding out all about his beloved. No, he died a long time ago, she said sadly. My mother is also dead, and I lived in Malta with my sister. Was that your sister who was with you the first time I saw you? Carmela nodded. Yes, we did not get on well together, so I left her and am going to some relations in England. Then I shall not see you again, said the young man in a moody tone. That depends on yourself, she replied, blushing. All the blood rushed to Ronald's fair face, and it was only by a great effort he prevented himself from taking her in his arms and kissing her. Does your cousin, the Marchese, go with you? he asked eagerly. I believe so. I suppose you are glad. Glad? She looked at him with surprise. Why on earth should I be glad? Because, because, well, desperately. He's going to marry you. Carmela frowned. Who told you so? Vassala himself. Is it true? Asked the young man breathlessly. Miss Cottoner looked at him in a queer manner for a moment, then turned away her head. My parents arranged a match between us she answered nervously. And you? I'm not in favor of it. I don't think there is any chance of my ever marrying the Marchese. Ronald sprang forward with a cry of delight. Oh, Miss Cottoner, Carmela, I... Would like to see the fortifications, she answered quickly, nipping the declaration she knew was coming in the bud. I wouldn't. Let us go down to the Almeda. She turned away, and Ronald followed, mortified and humbled at his failure, but halfway down the hill began to pick up his spirits. I can't expect her to fall like ripe fruit into my mouth, he thought hopefully, and it's impossible she can love me in so short a time. He was wrong there, for Carmela liked him very much, in fact, more than she cared to acknowledge to herself. But she would not allow him to speak because, well, because she was a riddle. 
Woman is an eternal riddle that man has been trying to solve since the beginning of the world, but every attempt has failed. Monteith, however, took his failure like the honest gentleman he was and turned the conversation. Remembering his anxiety to solve the mystery of Venton's death, he thought he would question his fair companion. Did you know a lady in Valletta called Mrs. Venton? he asked as they walked slowly along in the burning sun. No, I never heard the name before, replied Carmela promptly looking at him. Of course not, thought Monteith. It wasn't his right name. Who is she? said Carmela carelessly. That's the same name as the gentleman who died. She was his wife, replied Ronald. Does she live at Valletta? asked Miss Cottoner. I think so. Strange I never met her. She was married to my friend seven years ago. Oh, said Miss Cottoner with a slight start. No, I never heard of her, Mr. Monteith. They were strolling along the Almeda by this time, and the grand promenade of Gibraltar was crowded. Many an admiring glance was directed at the pretty girl Ronald was escorting, and one young officer was heard to declare that that dark girl was deuced good style, you know. On the Almeda they met Mrs. Pellypop and the ever-lively Pat along with Miss Lester, and the whole party were tired and dusty with sightseeing. Mrs. Pellypop, in fact, was rather cross but triumphant, as she had secured a number of bargains, though, truth to tell, she had paid dearly for her purchases. She was not at all pleased at seeing Ronald escorting Carmela, and observed with some asperity that it was time to return to the ship. Everyone being weary agreed, and they went down the steep street out of the gate, and Pat ran to get a boat. While thus waiting, the Marchese Vassala came up and addressed himself with some anger to Miss Cottoner. I did not get on shore till you left, and have been looking for you all day. You ought to have waited for me to escort you. Thank you replied his cousin languidly. Mr. Monteith has been kind enough to relieve you of your duties. The look Vassala cast on Ronald was not by any means a pleasant one. 6. Mrs. Pellypop Talks Mrs. Pellypop was an epitome of all that was good, a happy mixture of Hannah Moore and Florence Nightingale with just a slight favor of Mrs. Candor to add piquancy to her character. She was an excellent housekeeper, a devout Christian, rigorous in all her social duties, a faithful wife, and yet the late Mr. Pellypop must have been glad when he died. She was too overpoweringly virtuous, and wherever she went showed herself such a shining example of all that was excellent that she made everyone else's conduct, however proper it might be, look black beside her own. The fact is, people do not like playing second fiddle and as Mrs. Pellypop always insisted on leading the social orchestra, her room was regarded as better than her company. Her father had been a clergyman, and when she married Mr. Pellypop, who was in the wine trade, and came out to Melbourne to settle, she never lost an opportunity of acquainting people with the fact. Mr. Pellypop died from an overdose of respectability, and left his widow fairly well off, so she declined to marry again, not having any chance of doing so and devoted herself to the education of her only daughter, Elizabeth, whom she nearly succeeded in making as objectionably genteel as herself. Elizabeth was good, gentle, and meek, and as Mrs. Pellypop wanted a son-in-law of a similar nature, she married Elizabeth to the Reverend Charles Mango, who was then a humble curate in Melbourne. After marriage, the Reverend Charles turned out to have a will of his own, and refused to let Mrs. Pellypop manage his household as she wished to do. 
Indeed, when he was created Bishop of Patagonia for his book on missionary mistakes, he went off with his meek little wife to his diocese in South America, and absolutely refused to let his upright mother-in-law accompany him. So Mrs. Pellipop made a virtue of necessity and stayed behind in Melbourne talked scandal with her small circle of friends, bragged about her son-in-law the bishop, gave tracts to the poor which they did not want, and refused them money which they did, and, in short, led, as she thought, a useful Christian life. Other people said she was meddlesome, but then we all have our enemies, and if the rest of her sex could not be as noble and virtuous as Mrs. Pellipop, why, it was their own fault. At last she heard that the bishop and his wife had gone to England to see that worthy prelate's parents, so Mrs. Pellipop sold all her carefully preserved furniture, gave up her house, and took her passage on board the Neptune in order to see her dear children before they went back to the wilds of South America. On board the ship she asserted her authority at once, and came a kind of female Alexander Selkirk, monarch of all she surveyed. Two or three ladies did indeed attempt a feeble resistance, but Mrs. Pellipop made a good fight for it, and soon reduced them to submission. Her freezing glance, like that of Medusa, turned every one into stone, and though the young folk talked flippantly enough about her behind her back, they were quiet enough under the mastery of her eye. When the ship left Gibraltar late in the afternoon, Mrs. Pellipop was not pleased, and sat in her deck-chair steadily knitting, and frowned at the grand mass of the ape's head on the African coast as if that mountain had seriously displeased her. She was annoyed with the conduct of Miss Cottoner, who took an independent stand and refused to be dictated to by Mrs. Pellipop or anyone else. So the good lady, anxious to guide the young and impulsive girl and find out all about her, determined to speak to her and subjugate her if possible. So she sat in her chair knitting away like one of the fates and pondering over her plan of action, for Mrs. Pellipop never did anything in hurry and always marshaled her forces beforehand. Carmela, with the Marchese on one side and Ronald on the other, both of which gentlemen were exchanging scowls of hate, was looking at the romantic coast of Spain as they steamed through the straits. The rolling green meadows, undulating like the waves of the sea, with the glint of yellow sunlight on them, made a charming picture and turning to the other side she could see the granite peaks of the ape's head, with wreaths of feathery clouds round it, and a little farther back, the white houses of Ceuta. Add to this charming view a bright sky, a fresh breeze, which made the white sails belly out before it, and two delightful young men to talk to, it was little to be wondered at that Carmela felt happy. "'So these are the pillars of Hercules,' she said, looking from one side of the strait to the other. "'Yes,' answered her cousin." So the Greek said, I don't think much of Hercules as an architect, do you? Indeed I do, replied Carmela enthusiastically. What can be grander than Gibraltar and the ape's head? They are not exactly alike, said Ronald, looking at Vassella, and the Marchese likes consistency. Of course I do, retorted Vassella with an angry flush on his cheek, especially in women, with a significant look at his cousin. "'Then, my dear Matteo, you are sure to be disappointed,' retorted Miss Cottoner calmly, "'for you'll never get it. The age of miracles is past, my friend.' Ronald laughed and was rewarded by a scowl from the Marchese, and then Carmela, tired of keeping peace between these hot-headed young men, went off to talk to Mrs. Pellipop. Without doubt there would have been high words between the rivals had not a steward come up to Ronald with a message that the captain wanted to see him. 
So Ronald retreated, leaving Vassella in possession of the field, and the Marchese, seeing there was no chance of talking to Carmela, went off to solace himself with a cigarette. Meanwhile, Mrs. Pellipop received Carmela with an affectation of friendliness and proceeded to question her in a Machiavellian manner. "'What a pretty place Valletta is,' said the matron, dropping her knitting and rubbing her plump white hands. "'I suppose you know it very well.' "'I ought to,' answered the girl, laughing. "'I've lived there nearly all my life.' "'Yet you speak English well,' said Mrs. Pellipop skeptically. "'Yes, there are so many English people in Malta.' and besides, my mother was English. Oh, thought Mrs. Pellipop, noticing the use of the past tense, her mother is dead. So you are going home to your mother's people, I suppose? she asked aloud. Just on a visit, replied Carmela carelessly. Indeed, they live in London, I presume? No, at Marlow on the Thames. Oh, said Mrs. Pellipop, sitting up suddenly. Is that so? I am going down there myself on a visit to my son-in-law. He's the Bishop of Patagonia, my dear, and his parents live near Marlow. Mango is the name. I believe they are well known. Yes, I've heard of them, said Carmela cordially. A dear old couple, I believe. Mrs. Pellipop drew herself up stiffly. The parents of a bishop should never be called a dear old couple. It's savored of the peasantry. May I inquire the name of your relative? she asked coldly, taking up her knitting. Sir Mark Trevor. Indeed, said Mrs. Pellipop, impressed with the fact that the young lady was connected with a baronet. It's a Cornish name, is it not? I believe so. He has estates in Cornwall, but also has a house on the Thames where he stays for the summer. Oh, a bachelor's place, I presume, said Mrs. Pellipop artfully. Not exactly. He's a widower and has one daughter nearly as old as I am, and they are going to meet me in London, and then we intend to go to Marlowe for the summer. Then I shall probably see you there, said Mrs. Pellipop cordially. It's not unlikely, replied Carmela, rising. Good-bye for the present, Mrs. Pellipop. I'm going to lie down for an hour before dinner. Good-bye, my dear, said the matron, resuming her knitting. I hope I shall meet you on the Thames. I should like you to know the bishop. Carmela laughed as she went downstairs. "'She's quite pleased with me now,' she said gaily, "'and all because I have a cousin who is a baronet. "'Heavens, how amusing these people are!' Mrs. Pellipop was pleased with Miss Cottoner, and what she had termed forward conduct before she now called eccentricity. This young lady had aristocratic relatives, which relatives lived near the place to which Mrs. Pellipop was going. So the worthy matron, who had a slight spice of worldliness, resolved to cultivate the girl from Malta as a desirable acquaintance. She needs a mother's care, thought Mrs. Pellipop, so I must try and look after her. What would Mrs. Pellipop's conduct have been had Carmela told her that her cousin was a butcher? Just the same, of course, for how could a good woman attach any importance to such idle things as rank and wealth? Meanwhile, Ronald was in the captain's cabin talking over the mysterious crime which had taken place on board the Neptune, and both of them were in considerable doubt how to proceed. "'I want the affair cleared up,' said Templeton, "'if only for the credit of the ship. It won't encourage people to travel with us if they think there's a chance of being murdered on board.' "'The difficulty is how to start,' replied Ronald thoughtfully. 
You see, there is absolutely no clue to follow. Precisely, answered the captain, leaning forward. Let me state the case. A gentleman comes on board at Melbourne and conducts himself in a rational and sane manner, which puts the idea of suicide quite out of the question. Just before we arrive at Malta, he is restless and uneasy and tells you the story of his life, which affords strong grounds for suspicion that his wife wanted to kill him. He goes on shore, spies his wife, and returns at once on board. He goes to bed before the ship sails, and the deck is crowded with all sorts and conditions of people, such a crowd that there's absolutely no chance of knowing any of them. He is found dead next morning with an Italian stiletto in his breast, a weapon which a Maltese would probably use in preference to a knife. There is no evidence to show that anyone was seen near his cabin. Now, your theory is that his wife came on board before the ship sailed, killed him, and escaped on shore in the confusion. Yes, that is my theory, but only founded on the story he told me. Very good. We then find he told you that Venton was not his real name. I search his boxes and papers, and find no other name but Lionel Venton, and yet he distinctly denied that that was his proper name. He did, distinctly. I placed all the facts and evidence in the hands of the authorities at Gibraltar, and they are equally mystified with ourselves. They suggest that it might have been a Lasker or a steward. Impossible. There was no motive. No robbery, certainly, answered Templeton. But do you think there could have been any other motive? How could there? With the exception of myself, he was very reserved with everyone else on board. Then we dismiss the steward and Lasker theories. It must have been the wife. Now I have stated the case. How do you propose to unravel the mystery? Ask me something easier, replied Ronald with a laugh. Think again. He told you his story. Did he mention any names? One, Elsie McGregor. Good. Now do you see a clue? Ah, Ronald thought a moment. Yes, I see what you mean. If Benton were divorced, Elsie McGregor must have been joined as correspondent. Exactly, answered Templeton. I see you've caught my idea. Now I can't take up this case, and though I'll have to put it into the hands of the authorities, they are sure to make a mess of it. So if you want to unravel this mystery, you must find out the murderer or murderers of Lionel Venton yourself. I see, said Ronald, pulling his mustache. You want me to find out the divorce case. The captain nodded triumphantly. But McGregor is such a common name, objected Ronald. There may be dozens of correspondents called McGregor. Very likely, but what about the sex? The correspondent you look for must be a woman called Elsie McGregor. Yes, cried Ronald quickly, and then I'll find out Venton's real name. Of course, answered the captain, and once you find out his real name, you'll soon find the wife. And then? Templeton shrugged his shoulders. Oh, then you'll have to prove the truth of his story to you. But if I find out all about her, the stiletto will have to be put in evidence. Of course, answered Templeton, and that you can get from the authorities at Gibraltar, in whose hands I placed it. I have a letter of introduction to the son of an old friend of my father, said Ronald. He is a barrister of the Middle Temple. Oh, young? About thirty. The very man, replied Templeton, rising. Go and see him and tell him all about it. If he's anxious to make a mark in the world. 
which he hasn't done yet, interjected Ronald. He'll go in for this case. Gad, I wish I could go into it myself. I ought to have been a private detective. Well, said Ronald as they went out onto the deck, I came for a pleasure trip, but it looks as if I shall have to work all the time. Yes, but think of the time you will have of it putting this puzzle together, replied Templeton. It will be most exciting. Besides, if you bring this crime home, you'll get your reward, if not on earth, at least in heaven. I'd rather have it on earth, said Ronald, thinking of Carmela. End of chapters 5 and 6